Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. to episode five of the oh gosh oh golly oh wow podcast the podcast where we talk about the marvel comic series excalibur and nothing but excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks this week in episode five we are looking at excalibur number five send in the clowns originally published in february 1989 the creative team is chris claremont on writing alan davis on penciling and plotting paul neary on inks glennis oliver on colors tom orzachowski on lettering and terry cavanaugh on editing We have won battles against armies, and our one man defeats all my knights. He's a mighty opponent. This is a very <clears throat> sexy issue, even by Excalibur standards. It's also a particularly wacky issue. When we last saw our heroes, they'd switched bodies with the crazy gang and were trapped in Arcade's murder world. We've got a very smart guest to help us navigate all this wacky sexiness today, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, we'll introduce the usual team, starting with myself. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a girl who turned having a crush on every superhero into semi-gainful employment, talking and writing about representations of gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture. I'm the editor of the recent anthology super sex, sexuality, fantasy, and the superhero, but my most important job is being Kurt Wagner's increasingly official PR manager. I am joined, as always, by Mav, if you want to introduce yourself. Every superhero? Really everyone? <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Only only kind of, you know, I've got a handful, but the comics that I've really fallen in love with, I've always had a superhero crush to anchor me in that comic. That's so fair. That's absolutely fair. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. I am an, an academic of... Hmm, on so many different levels. Uh, I'm doing PhD at Duquesne University, where I am also an adjunct professor, and I'm also an adjunct at uh, Mount Aloysius College, both of which are in Pennsylvania. And I focus on representations of comic, or, or I focus on pop culture and representations of race, gender, class, um, sexuality in things like comic books, television, movies. I'm the host of another podcast called Vox Popcast, and I am excited about this because in many Anyways, one of my favorite issues, except for one thing that we will talk about eventually, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, excellent. Okay, Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's on the campus of the University of Waterloo. Uh, I'm also the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big academic study with social media manifestation uh, on Chris Claremont's work. Um, and I want to be Megan's adopted father who just thinks she could do better. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I don't know whether that's like sweet or creepy, and it's maybe a little bit of both. Oh, but I'm both. gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say sweet because she does, she does need someone looking out for, her and it can't possibly be Kurt. So, as I mentioned, we are joined by a very exciting guest for today's episode. We are joined by Dr. Sean Gilmore. Welcome, Sean. Hello, everybody. So, I'm Sean Gilmore. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, I primarily focus on teaching matters most days, uh, but I teach comics and prose as well as a lot of other popular culture and a bunch of composition. Uh, but these days I often uh, do a lot of work with a site I founded and edit called The Vault of Culture, which is vaultofculture.com, which doesn't exclusively focus on comics, but spends a lot of its time focused on looking at unexamined parts of culture and is open to both scholarly and lay writers. And I spend a lot of time reading and thinking about comics in part because this semester in particular, I'm teaching an introduction to comics course. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about recently missing corners of the thing we call comic studies. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to bring some things to today's discussion. Oh, you will definitely be able to bring some things to, today, to today's discussion. I met Sean at the Comic Studies Society conference, I think at Urbana-Champaign, the year that it was there, the first year, I guess, that they had it. And it is at the time that we're recording this, the one-year anniversary of Sean's site, Vault of Culture, publishing an essay that I wrote about Nightcrawler that was kind of part of my rediscovering the character, rediscovering X-Men comics, which became a reread of Excalibur. So in some ways, Sean, you are part of the genesis of this podcast. Not in some ways, like in a major way, because if I hadn't found a place to publish that piece and like got so much wonderful feedback on that piece and really felt like it was worth continuing some of those conversations, maybe we wouldn't be here today. Well, Thanks, I'm, I'm happy that I could have participated in that. Well, thank Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, so, Sean, we will start with you. We always start with kind of, we're going to get into a summary of the issue in a moment, but I did want to ask you, first of all, is this your first time reading Excalibur? Uh, yeah, so I've listened to uh, your first few pods on the first few issues, and up until about a week ago, I think I might have confused Excalibur with Camelot 3000, to be honest. <gasps> in terms of well, another, real, another really good series, and that's understandable. It is, and, uh, and I'll point out Camelot 3000 is in the bookstore display in the uh, opening one-shot issue along with the other Arthuriana books. So, uh, Oh, good catch. <laughs> it is. It's in there because I, I keep an eye for all book references in all comics. Such a wonderful book too. Uh, but one thing, um, I so I have no experience with reading Excalibur before about a week ago. I have read some of the short runs within the Claremont run on X-Men, but I've never attempted to read that in full either due to its fairly daunting nature in both amount and also pop culture reverence yeah there's so, there's a lot of comics yeah. that i haven't read because yeah. like i've never read swamp thing because i just get told so many times to read yep. swamp thing and i'm like honestly at this point what am i going to offer the conversation on swamp thing i got nothing i got nothing i got so many other things so, but I, you know but i've read i've read your god loves man kills i've read your days of future pasts i've you know i know i know the era <laughs> of some of these things both before and after but Excalibur other than knowing it had Captain Britain in it somehow which I was aware of and knowing that there were other um, intrusions of American pop culture especially comics into Britain including Justice League Europe which started the year after I had no real idea what this book was going to be about <laughs> so that's my real starting point I have a question though but you so you read did you read Sword is Drawn and 1, 2, 3, and 4 before this or did you just start with number 5? I read uh, Sword is Drawn and 1, 2, 3, 4 um, Anna told me that four leads directly into this, so I read those two back to back a few days gotcha. ago. Okay. Um, so I have I have seen a lot of the things that have been introduced, and I have listened to your explanations of a couple of things that made no sense at all, um, including, <laughs> including the stuff with a silver head that has no name that takes on some properties, I guess. 
kid that doesn't seem to be part of any continuity. I don't know where that kid's going at all. Um, and, oh, and I Colin. believe you that those go somewhere. But I will tell you, in the comic, that is really nonsensical. <laughs> it will be yeah. for another year of these episodes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel bad that we're kind of like just teasing it like that. But I mean, those people who have read Excalibur before will know, so they're at an advantage there. But I mean, you can Google these things too if you really want to Google that phrase and you really want to Google Widget the Robot, you will find the character's entire history. But we will talk about that history as it comes up in the comics that we're reading as well. I think we'll get into our summary of the issue and we'll come back to some of those first impressions specific to this issue. Um, so as I've said before, I'm hoping that we'll have some listeners reading along with the pod and I know that we have. And actually, I just want to pause here and say that thank you so much for the wonderful comments you've been leaving on our Twitter and the responses that you've been having to the pod. They've really been encouraging us in a really real way and also sort of encouraging us to pick up on threads that we maybe haven't addressed as well as we might do. And we're very, very open to those kind of comments and even, yes, criticisms. So, But for the most part, you've been so supportive and it's so, so wonderful. And I just wanted to do a little quick shout out. We record some of these in advance, so I hadn't had kind of a chance to address our loyal followers yet so I wanted to do that before we started thank you all so much you've been so wonderful so um, as I said I'm hoping that we'll get people reading along with the pod but if you haven't read this issue for a while and perhaps you have a less than clear memory of it or maybe recall it through a foggy haze of that didn't actually happen did it we'll start with that quick issue summary I promised Excalibur number five send in the clowns has a deliberate Alice in Wonderland vibe which starts on the first page with Courtney Ross falling down a chute equipped with robot arms that zip her into a version of Alice's iconic iconic powder blue dress. She lands in a surreal scene of candy-colored buildings under a rainbow sky where everyone is acting strange because they're not themselves. The crazy gang has switched bodies with Excalibur. Captain Britain has switched with Tweedledope. Nightcrawler has switched with Jester. Megan has switched with the Knave. And Phoenix is a scythe-wielding adipitar of death known as the Executioner. If this already sounds like a lot, hang on because it's gonna get zanier. After a brief fight, the body swap members of Excalibur decide discretion is the better part of valor and run away to regroup with the crazy gang hot on their heels. Meanwhile, Kitty Pride and her trusty dragon Lockheed, the only members of Excalibur still rocking their regular skins, break into Arcade's control room and toss him out of it. Kitty shorts out the murder world controls and throws the world into even more chaos, resulting in everybody getting split up. Courtney evades the Executioner, who is really Rachel, keep in mind, and takes out the Knave, who she doesn't really know is Megan, before she's choked by Nightcrawler's tail, which is being wielded, of course, by Jester. While all this is happening, Kitty continues saving the day, having previously teamed up with Doug Ramsey to develop a program to disable murder world, putting its control in her hands. She takes time to taunt Arcade once again before we jump back to Courtney and Jester as Nightcrawler, who is busy tying Brian Braddock's former girlfriend to an old-fashioned conveyor belt with a buzzsaw at the end of it. Nightcrawler as Jester crashes the party with swords, and an acrobatic melee ensues. In the commotion, Arcade arrives to save Courtney, temporarily. A basket of marbles sends her tumbling astride a phallic rocket, which she rides into a simulation of outer space and then onto a stage in front of an audience made up of anthropomorphic cream pies. Kitty's favorite band, Cat's Laughing, shows up to tell Courtney everything's going to be fine, but for a while it certainly doesn't look like it. Everybody busts in and cream pie carnage ensues until Kitty gives a reversal module made by Captain Britain as Tweedledope to Courtney, who begins setting things right. With everyone back in their proper bodies, Excalibur make quick work of the crazy gang, but Rachel, who's possessed rather than body swapped, remains a problem. Kitty, quote, slips completely inside Rachel's body, prompting an explosion of psychic energy that results in everybody getting creamy wet. Day saved. But wait, we're not quite done. A few days later at Courtney Ross's apartment, she faces another intruder. It's Sat-er-9, the fascist version of the Omniversal Majestra 
Matrix, Saturnine, who had been transported to Earth through a portal created by Widget in the last issue. Saturnine kills Courtney and takes her place. We cut to a bar where Kurt is giving Brian advice about manhood before returning to the apartment of Saturnine as Courtney. Brian arrives and is greeted with a kiss that he doesn't try to resist. He drops the roses he brought with him to the floor as Saturnine grips him tighter and we fade to black. Okay, so this is an issue of Excalibur. There are a lot of issues I feel like could be in the running for definitive issues of Excalibur, but for me, this one is right up there. Like, if I had to give someone an issue of Excalibur to test their amenability to the idea of Excalibur, I might give them this one. I'd figure, like, if they don't get scared off by this issue, there's hope they might hang in there for the long haul. But I wanted to put the first impressions back to all of you, perhaps starting with Sean, who's a relative newbie to Excalibur at this point. So, Sean, what did you make of this issue? Anything that sort of stood out to you, or you seem like you're ready to go for it, so go for it. This issue is a lot. Um, in some ways, I find it super recognizable from other late 80s comics. <laughs> so, okay. this is the kind of thing that might happen in a Doom Patrol run. Sure. Oh, where yes. Where you get explicit references to Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, like that tropey business was floating around. But it requires A, that you you really quickly pick up on the mind swapping logic, but then it introduces that Phoenix has a different setup that she's actually fully possessed. And it's set in a location, and I'm going to ask you guys this because I don't get it, that has rules I don't understand. I don't understand how <laughs> murder world works <laughs> like in a, as a physical location. Because to I assume there are rules of murder was, world is generous. Yeah, I thought it was Westworld with like a control center and animatronics. Yeah, you but got it. But it turns out that they can manifest a band and cream pies. I don't know what the, I don't understand that any of what that part is. Like <laughs> the logic internal to the space they're in is, is as you said, quote unquote logic. Uh, but that said, I like the dynamics of the book quite a lot. I actually think it's a lot of fun to watch the characterization reversals, uh, you know, as they pair off in these duels. And then in your summary, you pointed out there's a really interesting kind of body possession sexual climax thing going on that yes. I find that's we, we should talk about quite a lot because I'm sure we will want to uh, but that you know is almost too overt as they're splashing around in white goo for a number of pages <laughs> to emerge as themselves yes I mean it was how do I want to phrase this did kind of the sexual metaphors in the comic surprise you like does it sound or seem consistent with other comics from the era because I, I will say the part of my first impression and it's not a first impression because I've read this issue before but rereading this issue just how sexual it is and how blatant the sexual imagery is while still being kind of surreal and still being metaphor for most of the comic I was really surprised by how kind of heavy-handed it was like did that strike you as well um it's a little striking I will note that it's it's sexual but there's not a lot of focus on desire it's like these are mm. the things that are happening because of the setup which have to do with you know inhabiting bodies but it's not it doesn't no one ever is expressing a lot of lust to get there it's just the consequence of the way they've constructed it but they do spend a lot of time for example on this transformation scene that megan has and then splashing through the cream pies it's very hard not to read all of that in a sexual lens and i can't imagine that's unintentional uh yes I, it, maybe it's no. because i read a lot of things <laughs> that nothing really bothers me about comics anymore but it, it does strike me that if these characters were expressing a lot of interiority that suggests 
digested, they were getting a lot of actual pleasure out of all of this, it would really be surprising. But it seems like it's the frame they're put in that is in those terms. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. It's sort of a sexual context. But yeah, I want to get back to what you're saying about that lack of expression of desire, because I think that's a really good point in terms of how this comic gets away with some of what it gets away with by sort of, you know, presenting these sexual situations by not making them explicitly sexual. I want to get back to that, but I want to get back to other people's first impressions as well. Mav, Andrew, first impressions. Uh, they killed Courtney, you bastards. Um. Yes, I know. That scene is brutal. That is brutal. I know. It really is. I, I think we're going to spend most of this episode talking about the bulk of the story because that's like really just those two pages at the end but I mentioned last episode that that was the book where I fell in love with Courtney Ross and most of this book does nothing but cement it and she is delightful and wonderful and I love that she is you know she is adventurous and exuberant without having any power she's just this woman trying to do her best and oh yeah we disintegrated her what <laughs> and that was, we, we spent two me. issues we spent two issues sort of foregrounding her as a point of view character effectively and then suddenly in the last two pages of this comic and especially she's experiencing this moment of you know we talked about you just talked Sean about how there's a lack of expression of desire there she is definitely experiencing a sexual awakening in that final page that we see her right where she's flouncing around her apartment she's feeling sort of at home in her body she seems like she's feeling very sexy and happy and then suddenly Saturnine shows up at her door and kills her it's heartbreaking really really heartbreaking yeah and this last bit not to jump back in but this last bit right where it is this expression of herself and she says you know she's been reborn it brings us back to the actual opening frame where she's introduced as the former girlfriend and she's only in this position because she's a former girlfriend which is your straight green lantern bridging situation that's all that is right and it's a really weird place to then land us right it's really harsh to then imagine that this courtney ross figure who i didn't know a lot about other than knowing she existed as you know tied to captain britain i you know reading along think like oh she's gonna go some interesting places and then to have those as those closing pages (laughs) yep that that, that's my big that was my big takeaway from this when i read this as a kid the first time i was exactly where you are now i had very little knowledge of her from before as anna just said i spent two issues basically falling in love with her as they make her not just point of view she's the central character for issues four and five of this and then i'm left with a picture of her ashes on the floor and just I don't know if this is kind of spoilers. This is anti-spoilers for any listener reading along with us. This is, she's dead. This is not a fake out. She didn't, that's it. She died. They fried her. Yeah. When I was reading this for the first time, I did assume that she was going to come back and then you keep reading and keep reading and she doesn't. And yeah, I know, I know. So then revisiting it and knowing that I think it's even that much more striking. I almost want to get into that conversation of fridging out. But I mean, I will say like for me, I think how this is perhaps not an example of fridging is because she gets so much like care character focus before this happens and we are sort of brought into her space before this happens and yet that makes it more brutal as well but I think the ways that it makes us feel for her and have empathy for her makes it at least a borderline case of fridging. What about you Andrew? Some first impressions? Is there something that like particularly stood out to you about this issue upon rereading it? Um, Unpopular opinion I'm glad she's dead. 
I like the character, but I think it's really important to establish that continuity with Captain Britain. Captain Britain, particularly under Moore, Delano, and maybe even Thorpe, was all about how the superhero adventuring thing has consequence. You know what I mean? It, it, it's not a romp. So, so to see that kind of resurface this way, to have her develop this love of being an, in a superhero's world and have that have the consequence of her being obliterated, I really like that. I, I know it reads as totally inconsistent, but it establishes stakes for me. And Courtney was a throwaway character. Mm-hmm. She was a nothing character. Claremont just did his job a little bit too well in, in building her up in these last two issues to die. <laughs> which, which, I don't know. I mean, there's there's great pathos there. There's something you can build from. Uh, and I, I don't think anybody in comics history would be talking about Courtney Ross today. Did she not suddenly go Chris Blatt after, you know, um, having these great two issues that we're talking about? So no, I, I think this was a brilliant move. I, I think it's one of those examples of um, uh, a really poignant death in comics. And it doesn't read to fridging um, in, in my eyes, just because again, of all the agency that they construct around her. Yeah, yeah, that's my read of it too. But it does make me, we're going to get back to the super sex and sort of the, the many, many, many different tendrils of super sex on this issue but it does make me wonder about the thesis that's being put forward about the super sexual atmosphere of murder world as it's presented in this particular comic where Mm -hmm. her enjoyment of that space has this particular consequence and yet the other characters don't have to pay that consequence and i get that it's sort of that idea of she's the human in this superhero space so she doesn't get to escape that consequence so it's showing us how the rules of this space don't apply equally to everyone and that is very poignant and yet it also makes me wonder to what degree can we read Mm. I don't want to say shame bound up in it, but like a little bit, right? Because here she is experiencing this sexual awakening and then like in a horror movie, comic, whatever, she gets punished for that, right? And that yeah, sits and a little bit un- uneasily with me. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah and sure. I, want, I want to point to what Arcade actually says. He says, tell the truth now, Excalibur, admit it to yourselves, not to me, wasn't yeah. this fun. Excalibur actually doesn't admit any of this, right? She's the one who actually has the impact of it. And it's, it is, I, I, you know, I actually kind of like how harsh the end of the book is or the end of the issue is even if it is somewhat a little challenging on the the girlfriend side but it is fascinating that they've already set up in you know what presumably they already knew was going to be a long-running book that there are going to be like real world impacts that aren't just goofy right yeah this is a pretty harsh you know character death and it's imbued with a lot of as you said like pathos because she's actually been built up and i actually kind of like that even if it does also participate in something that we will now find pretty problematic yeah for sure go ahead matt i i I think andrew's right i mean i think it it had to happen i think it's very well done i think what makes it work what makes it work is that it hurts there is a reaction to it where you know reading it two days ago when when I reread it, I knew what was going to happen. And because I'm doing this fresh read through, I am once again affected by it because this issue and the previous one were so strong with her. So so it's good writing. She doesn't have to live. There don't have to be happy endings. And in fact, the point is exactly what you said. There can't be for everybody because she is just a human who, you know, she she could have died on the James Bond buzzsaw machine earlier, but she (laughs) presses her luck, not by any fault of her own but she she miraculously survives the murder world experience but there are other threats out there and she cannot survive this world she's just a human woman yeah and i mean it does speak to the genre bending that we've been talking about throughout the pod to right this intrusion of a different type of reality into this surreal space that had been established prior to that and that speaks to sort of some of the complexity you can engender through genre bending in the sense that you can subvert expectations by switching genres very suddenly like this in a comic book where you know because 
because of the nature of its storytelling, telling the story in fragments, whatever, can be very effective at sort of doing those tonal shifts, right? And I yeah, think, it's disarming. Yeah, for sure, mm-hmm. right? And like, I mean, yeah, it can do a lot of productive things in terms of getting us to reflect on the consequences of these superhero worlds, which like this is a lot that we're ascribing to the scene, but I do think it deserves that. I think it really builds up the character and sort of earns the emotions that this sort of quick turn inspires. Maybe this is a good time to turn towards a conversation of villains. And we've talking about consequences. We're talking about the nature of this world. We've already had some complaints about the mechanisms of murder world. So Andrew had mentioned at the end of the last episode that he has a particular dislike for Arcade and he kind of dropped that revelation on us and then ran right at the end of the episode. (laughs) So I wanted to come back to that now, but maybe we can spin that into a more general discussion of villains in this particular issue and in the series because we have really given villains short shrift as to now and it's curious about why we've done that. Why are villains not particularly important to Excalibur? Are villains particularly important to Excalibur? But I will give Andrew a chance to say his bit first. Andrew, what is your particular issue with the wonderful supervillain who is Arcade? (laughs) Um, Okay, a few things. So the first thing is, for me, in particularly Claremont's writing, the villains are ciphers. They're there to draw out some aspect of the heroes. Now, Arcade does that for Courtney. So there's, there's a good functionality there. I can't deny that. But at the same time, to me, Arcade is a Silver Age comics villain. He's the kind of villain you need when the comics code is in effect and you have to do something silly for Batman rather than something, you know, deeply tragic. Um, so so even just like by comparison, Saturnine, who comes in and kills this Courtney character that we've fallen in love with, is so much heavier to me and, and so much more interesting than this privileged, rich guy who's bored and stages elaborate nonsensical things. Now, again, that works for Excalibur because Excalibur likes to participate in a nonsensical world. Um, but I just find him so devoid of anything interesting. Any time he has a line of dialogue, I get sleepy. Uh, and that that's probably just me being subjective, right? And, and like snotty. Um, but he's never worked for me as a character. I, I've always resented those issues. He often emerges, though, in sort of later comics. So like we're talking like Bronze Age and after comics. Like he often emerges in these comics as a foil for characters to get their group back. Like that's happened in Spider-Man yeah. before. That happens in Uncanny X-Men number 204, which I've written about for Claremont Run before. He is that character for Nightcrawler, who is an interesting sort of parallel with this issue in terms of that's an issue about Nightcrawler having an experience in Murder World where he kind of gets his sexual mojo back as well in a very similar manner to which Courtney does in this issue. And I've often thought of Uncanny 204 as kind of a roadmap for Excalibur in some ways, particularly in terms of Kurt's role in that world and the role that he'll develop in Excalibur. So it's interesting to me the way Arcade can work within that Silver Age context as a commentary on that context. Like, again, when I think back to Uncanny 204, the way it's like, if it's about Kurt getting his mojo back, and he even has dialogue in that issue, right, about, I wish the world was simple the way it used to be and not sort of this dark and gritty thing with, like, unclear motives that there seems to be now. I wish it was just more like it is in Murder World, because that's sort of a metaphor for how superhero comics were before they got too dark and too complicated. And I think for me, Arcade can work really well on that level, and I think that this comic is an example of him working well on that level as well. But it, it's sort of intention, though, right, with the, the characterization part, which is you want to develop these characters against something that we understand its motivation, and to be honest, in these first issues, I'm not totally clear what these characters are pushing against other than they have this 
shared backstory trauma that started in the one shot issue, right? And then Arcade shows up here, and but it's I don't I don't have a sense of his stakes long term. We all know he's going to be captured, right? That's not that's not an issue really. It's just the mechanisms that get us there, and I think that is a kind of challenge because it's so thin compared to what's actually the main team's characterization. Well, maybe we need to get at this by getting sort of back to what we personally or, you know, critically or whatever view as the role of a supervillain in superhero comics. I do think that supervillains haven't been that important to the first five issues of Excalibur. I think the thing that they've been fighting are personal demons and the villains, as Andrew said, are more ciphers for that than anything else. But what do we think makes a good villain? Like, what are we looking for when we look for a good villain in a superhero comic book? I mean, some of the critical theories are that it should be an inverse of the superhero and we understand the superhero better through that inverse relationship. You know, it could be the cipher argument that Andrew brought up, right? That, you know, the interaction with the supervillain isn't the real story. It's how the superheroes react to the aftermath of that interaction with the supervillain. And that's something we see that gets us right back to Uncanny 204. What's interesting about that issue is Kurt's reaction to the non-battle he doesn't have with the Beyonder, right? So that's like a total <laughs> super, like subversion of how villains should work in a quote-unquote traditional superhero comic. What about that question? Like, what do villains do for us? Have they been important in Excalibur? Does it matter that they have been or haven't been important in Excalibur? I think the answer is yes, but there's a there's a qualifier to the yes because there is something about there is something reductive about the phrase a villain should be because mm-hmm. it, it, it implies a universalism that I don't think is fair because a villain should be what that particular narrative needs the villain to be. So for these first five issues of Excalibur, actually especially for the first four, um, we were talking about a we were building a story about these individuals these five core members of the team six if you count Lockheed sort of coming together and being a team and sort of their interpersonal relationships so my favorite villain in those first four issues is easily Juggernaut who has nothing to do like but I think that's perfect I think Juggernaut is perfect for the situation because he shows up and he says hi oh I'm going to be the villain here you must be the good guy all right let's punch and talk and like it it is it is meta cognitively taking awareness of what the narrative needs to be juggernaut almost knows he has a role to fulfill in this story so he's going to fulfill that role what's juggernaut's motivation it doesn't matter he's on like five pages it's irrelevant because he's just providing that story beat because that's what needed to happen there and he was necessary there for that reason there will be villains that matter obviously the thing that we talked about with saturnine she's going to matter clearly but she hasn't yet because as far as they know they've not encountered her yet in this i mean brian has before but i mean for this current storyline they don't know that saturnine's an issue so that doesn't matter yeah i mean that makes me think of like sort of the good and bad of the use of villains in these early issues of excalibur because i think you can argue that the main storyline of excalibur takes too long to get going in the Mm -hmm. sense that we don't have sort of what their mission is going to be clearly established until quite a bit later and yet we've done so much good work getting to know these characters as well so i don't know i go both ways on that right i mean i think roles are fulfilled right like arcade does the job that he needs to do and he's got this is probably the most motivation that arcades had in any appearance that he'd had to date i mean andrew's right he was a throwaway silly he's a he's a bond villain his job is to laugh and trap you in in death traps because that's what arcade does his backstory is irrelevant his motivations are relevant for pretty much all of his personal appearances here he at least kind of sort of wants something he kind of sort of has personality not much uh, andrew's not wrong but it's more than he'd ever got 
gotten, he is perfect for creating a co- consequences that Courtney can face because she's our hero in the story. And they're consequences she can face and she can overcome, but still have very real risks to her. You can't toss Courtney up against the Dark Phoenix. You know, you can't toss her up against the Mojo, but she could maybe survive Murder World if she's lucky, if she's, you know, she's plucky and she's got some final girl Mojo going from, from horror movies. Sure. Yeah. So you're saying that you think the villain in this particular book, this particular issue is like effective because it's doing what the book needs a villain to do mm-hmm. to tell the story that it wants to tell, right? What about you, Sean? What do you look for in terms of like a villain in a superhero comic? You've certainly got lots of experience reading all different types of superhero comics. I really like the point, actually, that if you're going to have a human scale protagonist, you need a human scale villain, right? So if you had someone with magical powers, if you had someone with psychic abilities as our main supervillain for these couple of issues, Courtney would be ill-suited to survive. And we would probably know that something else would have to intervene. But she actually can kind of both bumble and, as he put it, final girl her way through and actually be pretty successful by the end. You know, she gets to punch Arcade in the face at the end. It's great. I mean, that's it. That's exactly how that should be, right? She should punch Arcade in the face. But it also then, you know, especially because she she dies at the end of the issue, it actually isn't totally clear what that is in the sequence of antagonisms against Excalibur. Um, and I would, you know, as a reader who's now going to try to continue reading, would hope that things start to build or connect somewhere to get a sense of some pattern or organizing logic as opposed to just one-offs over and over <laughs> I was going to say, for context, I would like to point out that um, um, Courtney actually has fought Arcade before. She appears in Marvel Team-Up, where um, Spider-Man and, and Brian are together. She has one line, and I think it's, oh, Brian, I, and then it gets cut off. <laughs> uh, and that's it. So there's, there is a continuity to bringing Arcade in. But again, like the Marvel Team-Up for me was kind of a silly issue. Uh, so I, I can maybe forgive this also being kind of a sillier villain, as long as it you know establishes and connects that earlier continuity. But it shows her being better for that reason, right? Like. You know, like like she is more than she was in Marvel Team Up. So oh, yeah. that's not hard. Yay! <laughs> but I mean, you know, if we think about that too, in terms of the context of the history of Claremont having a number of occasions in which he's taken neglected female characters and rewritten them to be much more powerful characters, right? I mean, in terms of like rewriting Carol Danvers' story, you know, after the disastrous Avengers 200 with the Marcus rape thing, right? He has her come back and confront the Avengers. You know, he did um, a lot of interesting work with carol danvers actually and you know there's been a few different female characters that he's done that for and so maybe it's very meaningful that he picks up courtney who that was her last interaction with arcade and gives her two wonderful issues of sort of reasserting her agency and getting to punch arcade at the end before this tragic death that really i don't know like again we've already talked about that but like the good and bad things that that does for courtney as a character but to give her these wonderful two issues that really make us care about her as a character is just like i don't know that's really really wonderful i think well let's talk about we've been kind of been bringing this up sort of on and off but it can relate to sort of this villains thing a little bit which is like the surreal context of this world and I think that that could apply to Excalibur as a whole for the most part at least during the Claremont and Davis era but um I think we had a comment from we've had a comments from sort of a couple of UK listeners talking about a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about in terms of the gender bending and even some of the surreality of the series are very sort of typical of British comics and that that's sort of operating in that tradition. So some of the things that we're seeing as very sort of different or revolutionary actually have a history in this other type of comics that perhaps we're just not seeing. Well, one of the things is it is referential to um, the very specific comic Dan Dare when when Courtney rides the rocket and the rocket is Dan Dare's ship, uh, the Anastasia 
Anastasia. Uh, so like that's a really clear winking reference. Claremont is on record um, as being deeply influenced by Dan Dare, which was a very kind of um, cumulative story in, in British science fiction comics. Um, I'm very, very, very popular. Like Courtney riding that rocket to a British audience would be the equivalent of her riding the Enterprise. You know what I mean? Uh, it was really strongly connecting to that. Other than that, Davis is a very British styled illustrator, but he's marveled at the hell out of his style um, with the help of Paul Neary here. So you're seeing the really heavy inks that are in direct contrast to the usual um, sort of British style that we were seeing at this time. Um, very similar to what happens to Brian Boland when he comes over to DC. I actually see a bunch of this when you go and read the late 70s and early 80s Alan Moore stories in 2000 AD, where mm -hmm. they are specifically genre trap stories. He writes sci-fi stories, but they're really, really goofy, just almost to the point of straight absurdism. And you guys have used the term absurd to describe some of these setups in the past. And the thing that I think is being brought in here is an element of the actual plot description. I mean, if you wrote it out, you could write it as a much more straightforward body horror story, or you could show it in a much more conventional form, but they've retained that humor at the visual level. Right. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that, you know, a lot of these pages are pretty silly when you actually pick a panel of sliding around on gumballs, <laughs> landing on Dan yeah. Dare's rocket to then, you know, a couple pages later, that rocket becomes part of a, you know, landing her in a pie and a <laughs> cat's laughing scene. That's a pretty silly way to handle what is essentially a story about people who have had their, their minds swapped who then need to fight each other to save a human, right? You could do a different version of that. And I think that actually does carry over some of the sensibility. You know, if you compare to some of the, the Doctor Who both film, uh, TV versions and then a lot of adaptations in both prose and comics, those often have a real visual surreality, even if the story is really dire. Like people could die at the end of the stories, but the way they show them is pretty goofy along the way. And I think that carries into, especially I'm looking at this page with cats laughing and little pies all jumping up, you know, a pie audience that turns mildly orgiastic on you. That's a pretty <laughs> silly setup. And you actually like think about it. And they have, they have really retained how silly it looks to follow through on all those parts. Executioner swinging through and all the little pie faces on that arc of the blade. That's, I will admit, hilarious. Like, if you're just going to do that, you might as well do it all the way. And I feel like that carries over from that British visual sensibility, if nothing else. And I mean, it makes me think of, I mean, I've done some work on Canadian superheroes. And one of the things in sort of the, the critical language around Canadian superheroes is that Canadian superheroes have a hard time embracing unironically the heroic model that American superheroes establish. We're not American, we're Canadian, we have that, you know, distrust of those kind of American narratives. And the British context is a little bit different, because you have the imperial identity there, which, you know, we don't have that same sense of that in Canada, we're sort of a nation that's stuck between Britain and the USA. So we have a particular identity. And yet I see some of that outsiderness, you know, to the approach to Excalibur that I, I am kind of identifying as similar to like when we see something like Alpha Flight or something, which although it's totally a stereotype of Canada as a Canadian, when I'm reading it, it also feels very Canadian. I'm like, oh man, this like really, it's like so cool to see places from my country represented here and everything, even though it's in this sort of very stereotypical manner. And there's a little bit of a similarity there. You don't have the same thing about like, there's not like a Canadian visual language that I think is represented in something like 
like Alpha Flight. And you do have John Byrne having a Canadian connection. So there's a type of authenticity there. Often an angry authenticity. I don't think he likes Canada very much. <laughs> but at the same to time... To be fair, like, John, John Byrne yeah. doesn't like anything very much. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had a feeling that's what you were going to say. <laughs> but, um, but I like this idea that like even just because of sort of the British context of this comic, it has sort of a distrust of superhero narratives, that it has sort of an outsider yeah. perspective on superhero narratives. And some of the self-reflexivity that we're seeing in this comic maybe is rooted in that identity. Yeah, there's a layer of irony that, that we don't get in you know American X-Men comics at this time. I mean, for me, it's the my British connection is much more connected with television than with uh, than with comics. I've read some British comics, but the British humor that you end up with is out of a Red Dwarf or, or a Doctor Who. My favorite thing being there's and I read it as being just one pie. It's probably several of them, but there's one pie that just doesn't want to be here during that cat slapping scene. <laughs> so he's just very much oh the humanity, yeah. the horror, the you know to be you know like his, his quotes as he's just running around waving his little peace sign and again they all look the same so i don't know that it's just the one but um alas alack poor horace too creamy to live too fresh to die oh the humanity <laughs> and then he's running around. i can't take this anymore it's a nightmare the death the mutilation the horror it's just i think i think he's the pie that gets it from executioner right reading. <laughs> yeah and, and i just and i just love that that's you know that that's where he is he's just like i have become sentient and i don't want to die i don't want to be here and it's just there's a whole storyline for that one for that one pie that is just that is just like overlaid into the situation and yeah to sean's point does it make any sense how does a murder world work what what is the law what are the laws what is the science here i don't care it doesn't matter <laughs> you know they're sentient pies um arcade is not magic arcade's just a rich guy with a little bit of science how do you do this i don't know <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah, and like and uh, i understand there's no answer to this but somehow the reprogramming manifest the actual ban that, yeah you know, i'm not sure what katie did exactly because she moved the wires well she she like okay so i was a computer programmer for many years and i didn't do it by just you know yanking wires out and putting them back in like is she carrying around a, is she carrying around a disc that her and doug ramsey wrote three years ago That's i don't I know assumed. yeah i don't like and then she just she's just been carrying it around in her pocket because remember most of the doug ramsey software was destroyed by captain britain accidentally like two issues ago oh, that's so right the continuity here doesn't matter and her reprogramming of murder world appears to have been done nothing because it's not like everybody just turns on arcade and everything's fine it's not iron man getting the gauntlet you know from endgame it's still a really dangerous place where she does nothing other than the fact that cat's laughing is there and i don't think she programmed them in i think arcade just booked cat's laughing that was my impression the first time I read this comic. And then when I was reading it this time, I was like, oh, no, it's just a simulation, right? And then I'm just like, wait, no, Kenny explicitly says it's for real. Yeah. You so, know what? I would actually I would actually be very satisfied with Arcade actually just book cats laughing. That's a great and, explanation. And he would. I mean, the character, as I said, this is the most characterization Arcade's ever gotten, right? So the character of Arcade as exists in this, for the authenticity of his park, I absolutely believe would be like, we need a rockin' Minnesota rock band. Okay, <laughs> You know, so cats laughing. I'm going to fly them over to Britain to work my murder part. All right. I want to turn to talking about the super sex, which relates to all of these things. So we're going to get back to all of these topics, I'm sure. So we've talked about sex on this pod quite a bit already, and I'm sure we'll do so again, given this comic and given our individual interests. But what I think is particularly exciting about the sexual content of this issue of Excalibur is that it does a really good job of playing with what I call the presence and absence of super sex. So for me, what makes super sex, so superhero sexuality, 
in a superhero story and specifically a superhero comic I would argue what makes it a little bit different from plain old regular sex whatever the heck that is is the way it's like represented in this particular space and the particular ways it's represented in this space so we sometimes have explicit sexual content in superhero stories superhero comics but most of the time we're treated to these kind of diffuse sexual metaphors that can mean a lot of different things like the cream pie scene that we keep talking about at the end of this issue so for my money the cream pie scene is way sexier than the kiss that Brian and not Courtney share at the end of the issue even though nobody kisses in the cream pie scene or even really touches anybody else I still think it's the sexiest scene in the issue and I particularly think the sexiest panel in the entire issue is the aftermath panel where everybody is sitting around already creamed by the pies with Rachel and Kitty in the center of the spectacle we can talk a little bit about why but um, I wanted to just sort of focus on some specific sort of scenes and imagery that we have here starting with Courtney on the rocket now this is clearly a phallic rocket we've talked about the Dan Dare connection as well but I'm wondering in terms of Courtney landing on the rocket in terms of this image of her riding the rocket is this an empowering image is this a disempowering image what do we make of a sexual metaphor like this how does it work how would we help our listeners unpack some of this imagery you called it riding the rocket I mean like yeah let's start there right (laughs) she falls on it and it is very clearly meant to evoke good girl artwork um which is which very much works and she's dressed as a fictional child as right. well right right exactly. and she's you know she's because exactly. she, she wasn't wearing that before she was dressed as a playboy bunny up until this you know up until just now where they we need to put you in in lolita fashion in order you know we'll give you the classic alice in wonderland outfit for no apparent reason arcade just decides that he wants her dressed in this presumably for the cosplay fetish aspect of the rest of the book there's no other real reason for her to, him to dress her that way when she changes we get to see her you know nude for just a moment so there's there's a sexualization that like we've placed upon courtney for all of this and then you you know we put her in a james bond death trap like i said and then you drop her on a rocket between her legs as she grasps at her crotch so i don't know that there is any other way to read it you know it's charged like you said it's just it's very sexually charged i guess my specific question though would be when she's here riding the rocket that's extending from between her legs is she sort of owning that phallic symbolism there is it empowering in that sense or is it disempowering because she's at the mercy of this object i'm really curious about the ambiguity of that image which seems like a very obvious image and yet i think again has ambiguity well she so if you jump a couple pages later when it's when it re-enters the plot right it's referenced as a thing that she has already known about so i love reading dan dare never imagined i'd ride his classic spaceship which is quite a line um right so it has that kind of nostalgia business going on at the same time but she actually leans into it and then is sort of climbing off it as it actually collides into captain britain who's obviously not really captain britain right there you know she starts to get possession of it but she's you know engaged with it as we might say in in actually uh the progress of the story uh and then she falls off right at the end you know the real brian i hope falling again another tumble so she basically falls onto and off it because it can't be controlled she can't actually control it uh and not to throw too much over reading but i have to note that the next line that gets said on the next panel right after she falls off the rocket 
to stay there, Courtney, until I come back again for you. And come is spelled C-U-M. And I just have to point that out. That's just because I can't help it. I really appreciate you pointing that out. Thank you so much, (laughs) Sean. But just that scene where she is riding the rocket. I mean, yeah, I think that she's at its mercy. And yet she's also existing in this place in which she's sort of like pinballing back and forth. And I don't feel a lot of genuine jeopardy within this space for her at this particular point until we get that intrusion of reality at the end. So like, I mean, it is a space of sexual possibility in a lot of ways. And we can think about her riding a phallic rocket. We can also think about her being knocked onto a giant vibrator, right? So I mean, like, is she taking pleasure in the scene or is she at the mercy of this thing? And I think that's what I'm trying to get at in terms of the ambiguity. Would you go so far as to say it's a microcosm of her sort of broader sexual awakening in the issue? The idea that she's been swept up in this, but she finds it deeply enjoyable and it mm. inspires her. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, that's what's going on with Courtney. I mean, like, as much as I can see her being disempowered throughout the issue, I can also think, like, me following her adventures throughout the issue, it's very erotically charged, but I find it erotically charged in a way that I find pleasurable as I'm reading about it. I don't find it, like, intimidating I find it's creating kind of a space of surreality that feels safe for me to kind of vicariously enjoy some of the things that she's put through in this issue. And I think that that's really interesting the way Mm. that it is able to achieve that. Well, and I will note that the panel right before she falls onto the uh, slips on the gumballs and falls onto the rocket starts with her yelling my pleasure, right? Hitting arcade. And there is, you know, we get this trajectory. I think you're right. It is a microcosm of being put into the situation, right? She's not choosing to fall onto the rocket, but once she's on it, she's trying to make something out of it. And there is that kind of progress and discovery element of erotic awakening that we often see in other kinds of less corny narratives uh, that, you know, that by the time she emerges at the end of the story, thinking about whether did I have fun in Murder World, she had a certain kind of fun in Murder World. That's, that's part of her awakening, right? It isn't fully realized here. It's not as though she actually takes control to full satisfaction. But I do think, you know, that's part of the journey this character is being put on that we, I think all of us find really fascinating. And just in terms of what that sexual awakening is, though, too, like, I guess I'm just trying to make the point that, like, even though she's falling onto a phallic rocket, I think that there are sort of, like, I don't want to say anti-phallic connotations to that, but I think, like, phallic imagery doesn't have to automatically mean female masochism or disempowerment. I think that there are oh, other possibilities right. of work there as well. Yeah, well, I don't think it does. That's kind of where where I think it's weird. I, I think that we are supposed to read this entire issue and the previous one as, yeah, she was forced into this world, but this is Courtney's world and she's going to own it. Mm-hmm. You know, she does take control for two issues of the narrative she should have died in that comedy session before but it's like no i'm funny she's on the on the conveyor belt and she has to tell kurt yeah if you're gonna rescue me you better do it soon and she specifically lifts her head so as not to get buzzsawed um which is a very small detail but she has a little bit of power here and then she falls on the rocket she's saying oh dear it's out of control but she does manage to i mean you called it a vibrator almost she does manage to control it and fly it around and you know bang it into Tweedo Dope Britain you know she's got some power here but then my question which I guess is mostly for Anna since you are the one who said you brought the empowering issue yes it's a sexual awakening for her but it is still a sexual awakening that was thrust upon her unwittingly Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. Arcade deciding that he you know she didn't ask for this she didn't decide I want to try and explore my superhero sexuality she was victimized in a 
say, no, babe, I'm putting you here whether you like it or not. And it just so happens that she enjoys it and she just so happens to be good at it. But like, isn't that the same as, I mean, it's a, it's a trope of final girlness, right? Like Laurie Strode doesn't ask to be in Halloween. Laurie Strode gets put in Halloween against her will and turns out that just luckily she happens to be a kick-ass action hero, but she wasn't looking for that, right? And so I wonder if that's, or, or Sydney from Scream or any of the, is it just a horror trope that no one puts themselves in murder world voluntarily but if i'm there i'm gonna enjoy it i guess i don't know yeah i know what you mean but i think it's just that when i'm reading this issue kind of in isolation and reading sort of some of the imagery in isolation and i think comics and the way sexuality works in something like a superhero comic where everything is very sexual charged with these constant barrage of sexual metaphors which i think is amped up to 11 in this particular comic there's still a lot of pleasure to be gleaned by those sort of individual moments of sexual expression individual sort of moments of sexual metaphor and although as a critic i can't divorce that from that larger context i can say as a person reading this comic you know i found this very sexy and i found sort of following courtney's journey very sexy and i found the idea of being courtney in this comic very sexy because you know despite the fact she was put in this against her will which you know i'm not neglecting that as being super 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 important and i'm not like being like this is the most feminist thing and it's not problematic and yet like again i think sort of the consequence free nature of the space while courtney is in it at least lends it a really exciting sexual charge that again rereading it i think i really appreciated more than the first time i read it that's fair i wonder if you're i mean and i wonder if maybe what happens is we have to just accept that the nature of superhero comics is if you're a hero well i shouldn't say all heroes most heroes or even incidental heroes like like courtney you don't go looking for trouble right trouble always finds you so it's just her you know she's not looking to be in murder world any more than the rest of excalibur are you know brian wasn't looking to be in murder world either it's just the way things work right you get captured and then the enjoyment is being the hero that can take control you know she takes control of the sexual nature of the story more so than kitty who i'm not really sure what she even did when she reprogrammed it as i was saying i I don't you know she pulled some wires but it doesn't seem to have changed anything she says it does but i don't really know so courtney really does seem to embrace this and there is a power yeah i mean i guess i'm uncomfortable because she takes control of it and then dies for people. I know, later. I know. That's what, that's what <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with too. Because like, again, like I like the way that she has the sexual agency within Murder Roll, but that's right. why I sort of brought that up as the beginning, at the beginning, right? Because right? as much as I think that that death scene really works, I'm just like, oh, but she gets punished for the sexual awakening. That's the part that's really losing me. Right, right. And something you were just pointing to, yeah, it's hemmed in by the kind of tropes and plot structures that it's borrowing from, right? And so Alice in Wonderland does choose, you know, she follows the white rabbit that's the beginning part she's curious and does that but then a whole series of things are put upon her and then it's also the superhero trope and narrative structure on top of that which as you were pointing out very rarely is about superheroes going out and seeking out the plot they want to follow that is actually not how almost any of these comics are ever structured and i think that confines you know the the dynamics in an interesting way we don't usually talk about it that way but it's really interesting in this like what is she able to do given that that's literally the things she's confined by for this issue 
Well, and it gets back to sort of the nature of heroism in a superhero comic, right? Like a supervillain is like proactive. A superhero is reactive. And that's how we know that they're a hero. Because if they're being proactive, they're like would be catching people before they commit crimes. And we know what a slippery slope that is and everything, right? So like, I mean, it almost gets back to what you were bringing up at the beginning, Sean, that the way it maybe gets away with these, you know, fairly heavy handed, really sexual metaphors is by making the characters not openly express desire. The fact that this happens to them and specifically to a female character, because if she was going out and looking for this kind of deviant sexual pleasure the comic would read very differently right in general because of our cultural prejudices but especially within this genre which if a woman is doing that she's enchantress she's a villain right but let's talk about kitty and rachel because we have talked around their relationship and some of the queer themes in their relationship on previous episodes but we haven't articulated it really succinctly andrew could you kind of walk us through we know that claremont had certain goals for kitty and rachel and one of the goals supposedly was to have them eventually be together in a relationship and in fact in some comics such as x-men the end it seems as though he wrote them together in a relationship it wasn't sort of made explicit on panel but heavily heavily implied and we get a very interesting scene in this comic in which kitty as i quoted in the intro slips completely inside rachel's body to bring her back to herself this is what causes the massive cream pie explosion that creams everybody that is literally what happens so i'm curious like at this point in the series, do you see Claremont kind of trying to get us to buy into the Kitty Rachel relationship? Because he's had a vexed history with developing that relationship, as much as he had said at certain points that that was a goal. In certain other comics, he's paired Rachel with Kurt, for instance, which is a very strange move given what his stated goals for the series were. So I was curious about your thoughts about that being a Claremont scholar, if you had any insight into what his goals for that relationship were. I think it, it really conforms to the trope that he often sort of falls back on with the idea of a romantic or sexual relationship being represented canonically as a um, spiritual bond or a psychic bond. Uh, he cultivated that first gene in Cyclops, but then we see it very strongly um, in a queer context with um, Rain Sinclair, Wolf Spain, and Daniel Moonstar, uh, Mirage in The New Mutants. Um, same sort of idea, the idea being that they're connected at a psychological, spiritual level, uh, and that that's where their sexual relationship unfolds um, in a weird sort of sublimation. And I I see that here exactly as you're saying like this is literally uh, a psychic connection frees the heroine but subtextually it's not and I, I think that would totally read as a dog whistle um, to an audience who was looking for that kind of thing but how do we read this as getting back to sort of those questions about empowering and disempowering like is this queer baiting is this legitimate queer content like is it worth being critical that he doesn't go far enough in these comics I don't think it so, so you could argue it's queer baiting in the sense that there is a sort of denial of it but it's not his denial, right? It's the comics codes. Uh, it, it's the standards of Marvel at the day that force him to have to make it non-canonical and literal. He talked about it constantly in conventions. People would walk up to him and say, is there something between Kitty and Rachel? And he'd be like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's just not allowed to write it. So you can interpret it that way, but that's not his intent or it's like a more complicated version uh, of queerbaiting. I wonder when, when we talk about queer, queerbaiting is very much a modern term that wouldn't have been as in use in 1988. Yeah, yeah for sure. And I wonder if um, when we're talking about, you know, what Claremont would have done if he would have stayed, right? Claremont claims lots of things. Claremont claims that had he stayed on X-Men any longer than he did, his intent was to kill off Wolverine for real, permanently, for real, 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 real. I have the receipts on that. He was actually yeah. supposed to come back, but yes, he was yeah. going to kill him. Yeah, and I have questions as to how, whether editorial would have ever really let him get away with that at the level of popularity Wolverine was in 
1992 when he intended to do it, right? Right. So, like, they're not his characters. He doesn't own them wholesale, right? And there's a comics code, and no matter how much he might have wanted Kitty and Rachel to be a couple, very little queer content was acknowledged in comics at all in 1989. So this might have been as far as he was ever going to be allowed to go, just because they wouldn't, you know, he just would not have been able to. And I do think, I mean, yes, it's Beatty because it's like hinting at it for those of us who might want to see it, but like, I don't know what more he could do. They cannot kiss. They could not have been allowed to kiss on, you know, on the page in 1989 in a comic. He would have never gotten away with it, I don't think. But on the other hand, just reading the story, being a fan of comics, that's not how Kitty's powers work. That's not how Rachel's power works. Kitty <laughs> went inside of Rachel's body because Kitty wanted to go inside of Rachel's body. It's a, Rachel is a, is a psychic. If Kitty wanted to like have Rachel see herself through my own eyes, then just open up your mind. You're friends with Rachel. You're friends with Jean. You're friends with Professor X. You know how psychic powers work. You don't need to phase inside of anybody's body. You've never done this before. This trick has never involved what she just did. She did it because she wanted to. I guess the thing that frustrates me about the Kitty Rachel thing, though, is that I think about a very charged panel, like the look that Kitty and Courtney share in this comic, yeah. you know, where they're sharing this mutual admiration in their thought bubbles, which could just be about like, here's a female friend who I think is powerful and inspiring and that's so great it could be that or it could be a queer bond i think there's a suggestiveness to their expressions there that lends it a queer charge he doesn't give those kind of glances to kitty and rachel in this comic or i would argue most of excalibur like those kind of charged glances just aren't there to me even though we have these dramatic sexual metaphors like we have here or one of the previous issues that we talked about rachel holding kitty together right their bond is very deep mm -hmm. and yet it's on that psychic level and i personally looking for that queerness between those those characters find some of those gestures a little bit missing. I don't remember Rain and Mirage ever getting them either. I mean, I wonder if he just like the the Kitty one with Courtney is almost an outlier, and you know, it's indicative of some stuff that's going to happen later in the series yes. that I don't want to get too much into right now. Mm -hmm. But it's there is a question of how much can he and Davis get away with under the code, which is unfortunate. And I think you know the code and standards of practice of Marvel, which is better in 2021, but you know, still you know, it's not an indie comic. He doesn't have free reign. I don't know because it's like. You said Claremont says a lot of things and I guess I'm just a little bit suspicious about some of these queer themes in his work just to the extent that and then this is not me like not celebrating it or something the scene with Kitty and Rachel is amazing and I love it to pieces but at the same time he has had chances in the 21st century outside the auspices of the comics code and there's a particularly interesting one that I know a lot of readers probably aren't aware of so Claremont writes a story in Marvel Comics Presents number five from 2019 in which he revisits Excalibur and he makes it very very clear in that issue that Rachel and Alistair, who we haven't seen Alistair yet, we'll see him in the next issue, are together. And again, that was like this comic where, oh, so the other interesting thing about that Marvel Comics Presents issue is that he strongly intimates, there's a scene with Destiny and Nightcrawler where she calls him her son, and we get some reflection on that intended origin for Nightcrawler with Destiny and Mystique being his parents. So he's like reinserting the queer context and he gets away with it in that comic by saying like, well, we visited so many multiple Earths, maybe there's a multiple Earth in which she was your parent or whatever and yet he's still in that comic there's a very strong straight washing of Rachel so I don't know there's just been a lot of different things that have happened with these characters when Claremont has done them as various times so I don't know I just wanted to bring that up this isn't like me being critical of him in the sense that I do think he pushed for a lot that he could do under the auspices of editorial control as we've been saying and yet part of me always has a little bit of a suspicion as well and I think it's just that I'm hungry for that more explicit content and like it's frustrating 
frustrating when we don't get it. So another aspect of the sexual content of this issue, we have an interesting scene in which Lockheed gets seduced by Arcade's female accomplice, Miss Locke. Um, that raises a lot of questions. So Lockheed... Many, many questions. Yeah, the sentience of Lockheed has been established that this is a thinking creature with agency and whatnot. But Lockheed is attracted to human women. Hmm, what did we make of this development? It means he's been enjoying seeing Kitty Pride change clothes for the last four years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Giving him lots of belly rubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, again, moving forward into modern comics is a thing that is now established. You know, Lockheed is entirely a thinking being, depending on who's writing him, maybe capable of speech. Like, he's not a pet and was just basically pretending to be for a long time in comics. I don't know what the intent is here, but it really does appear that, you know, for some reason, Locke, you know, Locke, the woman, knows that she can seduce this dragon. Yeah, that was was my, like, logic (laughs) question is, how does she know that? Because it would not be my intuition that 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 is a seducible creature. I'm going to be sexy around this guard dog and see if it works. (laughs) Well, I guess within the cartoon logic of the world, that seems like it would work. Yeah, it's suits the, the sort of, I don't know, tone or theme uh, of the sort of sexually charged atmosphere that even Lockheed gets sort of sucked into it. Um, but yeah, it raises too many questions about his relationship with Kitty. I've always found that a little bit creepy with Kitty and Lockheed. I mean, it's always like, oh, come here, scratch him's. But then he's like a sentient creature. And I'm always like a little bit like, a little bit skeeved out by that. Yeah. But at a certain point, it veers into that like Disney, which dogs get to have consciousness problem of like, yep. maybe let's not worry about it super hard, <laughs> except when there are actual romance scenes. I I guess, though, like when we're thinking about how much sort of like a metaphor and queer subtext and sort of sexual deviant subtext is yeah. working into these comics that I'm just like, well, he's clearly aware of that with the Lockheed thing then, isn't he? I am OK with the ambiguity of Lockheed mostly, but it does raise questions sometimes. We're going to get a later issue of Excalibur in which he narrates the issue as well, which will be interesting. Can I ask you kind of, you know, a wrap up question that I think might get us back to, you know, some of these things that we can do anything that we haven't talked about, which is that I specifically wanted to talk about that panel that I brought up which is the aftermath of the cream pie explosion and then we have all of the characters covered in goo with the exception of Rachel and Kitty and I wanted to ask you as readers as comic scholars on whatever level you want to ask that when you're looking at that panel where does your eye go what are you drawn to in that panel which character are you focusing on what is your main takeaway when you look at that panel I think the bottom two panels on this page are amazing on every level my my eye is drawn right to the middle that they're not covered and then up to that question mark, a word balloon, because it has the red question mark in it, because they're unaware in some sense, or she's, I should say, Phoenix is unaware in some sense of what has just happened, which is that they've merged and covered the rest of the team in goo and are themselves now the center of this remnant of the kind of orgiastic conclusion of that merging. And I think that is amazing, both visually and storytelling, even if it isn't as satisfying because it isn't as knowing, right? She's, you know, Rachel's not aware that that has fully happened. That is a really cool way to show that. Kitty's joy is really great, too. I mean, if we are going to read it having that, you know, sexual subtext, you know, the joy on her face, I do find very appealing. Yeah, I mean, Sean keeps calling it orgiastic, and I don't know how else to read it. That entire fight with all the goo that culminates when when Kitty enters Rachel and explodes, you know, ejaculating over the rest of the crowd. That's the only way you can really view it. So yeah, my eyes drawn the same place as you. And I I, how, how he got this past the code at that point 
how they got this past, past the code at that point sort of amazes me. I mean, like mm. I can see plain dumb. No, no, no. What are you talking about? What sexual pies. metaphor? This is pie. <laughs> yeah, and then just forcing the and just forcing the CCA to be like, no, please explain to me what do you see here? Because I just <laughs> yeah, see people fighting yeah. in pie. <laughs> you know, and it's like that's how I imagine they did it because no, that's a porn scene. Yeah, and I mean, walking walking back some of my criticisms of the queerness not going far enough either. Like, I mean, there's a counter argument to that that the sex here or the sexual metaphor here is intensely, intensely queer. I mean, you're talking about a woman entering another woman, and then an orgiastic explosion that you know could be connotative of femininity, could be connotative of, I think, more strongly masculinity as well. So you have a real deviance happening here in terms of the type Mm -hmm. of sexual union that they're engaging in as well, even though it's just metaphorical. I do think that is powerfully queer in a way that. I wanted to make sure that we know. And the a sound effect is blue. Credit to backforming to yeah. set up the cream pies to make this work, right? You have to write a whole scene with a cream pie audience so that you can land on that <laughs> panel, which is mm-hmm. also genius. What about you, Andrew? Thoughts on this panel? No, I, I kind of agree. I, I agree with Sean. This is a very labor intensive bit <laughs> that has a huge payoff at the end. I mean, I was kind of asking you this question to set up my own bullshit response, which is that I definitely just look at Nightcrawler in the panel and I'm like, oh, geez, Kurt is all covered with icing. And then I just completely lose <laughs> focus and can't see anything else that's going on. Anyway, the reason I wanted to bring that up was for a semi-serious reason, which is that what I particularly like about that panel is the kind of diffuseness of the eroticism there. You get a lot mm. of interesting exchange of gazes there. You get Megan looking at Kitty and Rachel. You get Kurt looking at Kitty and Rachel. You get Brian, as usual, kind of left out of all of the fun. But you think about all the different sort of cross gazes going on there and all the different possibilities for affiliation and identification and desire going on there. And that's what I particularly, particularly like about that scene and sort of everybody being sort of like united in this gooey mess, even though Rachel and Kitty are the ones that aren't covered with goo, I think is part of what's powerful about the diffuseness of that moment, if that makes any sense. Um, Anything that we desperately, desperately wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about yet, because there was so much in this issue, and I think we could spend another hour on it at least. Can we spend an hour on the Tam O'Shanter that um, Nightcrawler's wearing in that pub? Oh, God, yeah. We should make it a running theme to comment on his fashion at the end of every issue. What is happening? He's evolving. That's a style choice. (laughs) Kurt makes many choices. There there, there should just be, you're right, there should be a Kurt fashion watch. We should, I don't know that we want to talk too much about this because it's going to become the Kurt, Brian, Megan triangle is going to become more and more prominent over the next five issues or so. But um, what I'd forgotten, you know, until this read through, I didn't remember how much Kurt talked down to Brian in this scene. Oh yeah, he straight up questions his manhood and says like in his thought balloon, like is does Brian have what it takes to be a man? And I'm like, whoa. Wow, yeah. And it was just, he straight up just dresses him down, basically says, you're doing the wrong thing brian comes across more of a more as an idiot here than i think it's like dude this guy wants to take your girlfriend why are you confiding in him that you're flying off to have have an affair what's wrong with you but brian's an idiot so it i don't know it, it is weird because i'd forgotten this scene was here and i want to remember it when we get to some of kurt's own guilt for his attraction to megan later and in, in, 
future issues but I, ugh, it reads a little aware. bit like yeah it reads a little bit like kurt like begging him to be like dude stop me from taking your girlfriend because like this is happening and like right. i'd really want you to stop that. me yeah it reads exactly then, like that yeah and then on the next page does brian sleep with saturnine i think so right he does yes. sleep with that he okay. was okay. planning <laughs> to sleep with courtney obviously like he went to her apartment with rose Ro- yeah yeah. Right. yeah and kurt right. is a dick kurt is an absolute dick in this scene you have any idea how humiliating that would be to megan that he's complicit in brian's affair oh yeah next time we see them they're in bed together you know what i mean megan and brian right and that kurt would allow this to happen like he's supposed well, to is he allowing it or is he saying i mean he does I mean, I, why I doesn't he go to the do lighthouse and tell megan like i mean he's critical but there's a like a pardon the expression a really a negative bro like bros before hose yes. like thing going on here that i'm yeah. like Ooh, not the best moment for either of them no, right right yeah and i just i just i'm not i'm not sure what they were going after especially given how their future relationship is going to play out like because they're not bros right no. you barely know this dude exactly and you want to take his girlfriend like you explicitly want to take his girlfriend and you but barely also, know him you're so basically what... in this scene conspiring with him to allow him to cheat on his girlfriend while pretending to be a shoulder to cry on for her not great not <laughs> yeah great. i don't I, yeah i don't know what we're supposed to do with it and and i think that's why i had edited it out of my head mm-hmm. you know in future in future interactions with them but we will probably come back with it because now that i'm aware like i said i didn't really remember how much happened on that one page until this read yeah oh i wish that we talked a little bit about sort of doppelgangers and agency and consent and how some of those themes kind of work into the sexual metaphors of this issue too but maybe we'll have to let our let our mm. listeners talk about that amongst ourselves andrew did you have some final thoughts i'm mad at kurt i, I think Aww. as his pr rep <laughs> you have like some some brand damage yeah. to make up for. yeah he's gonna have to come on like a late show and do or no more like a morning show and and do some <laughs> do some humanizing heart to hearts to make up for his behavior here I'll have to tour some schools mm-hmm. <laughs> flash that winning smile at some people till they all forgive him swoon and forgive him my king i couldn't do it excalibur cannot be lost other men do as i command one day the king will come and the sword will rise again um, I guess we will wrap things up. I know we've kept you a little bit longer than we promised, Sean. So, Sean, I am so happy that you could join us to talk about this issue. And thank you so much for pro- helping provide us with your expertise and helping us work through some of the wacky, sexy zaniness of this issue. Before we wrap things up, is there anything that you would like to plug a final time for our listeners? Sure. Um, it's great to be here. And thank you for uh, getting me into reading Excalibur. I'll be following along after this and seeing where it goes. Um, so probably the main things I'd like people to know about is I edit a website called the Vault of Culture, which is vaultofculture.com. And it is a public culture site. It's open to both scholarly and lay writers. So if you have something you want to write about or publish on, let me know and we'll see what we can do. And then you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Gipperfish, which is G-I-P-P-E-R-F-I-S-H because I never bothered to get my uh, actual name. So that's what I'm thinking. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually true. I never even bothered, never even thought it was a good idea. So my name is already taken and sometimes people tag the poor other Anna Papard and superhero sexuality oh, things yeah. and I'm like I'm so sorry <laughs> I've done it there twice are me out there so I, I have tagged the other Anna twice on things that were supposed oh, to be for you that, that I'm aware of which is great <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, thank you so much again, Sean. It was really great having no a full problem. circle of me publishing the Nightcrawler piece with you and having you come on the pod. Love that. No, article. this is great. Thanks, guys. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode six, in which we will be discussing Excalibur number six, Goblin Knight, one of Excalibur's two Inferno event crossovers. If you enjoyed today's conversation about Excalibur's particular approach to super sex, good news, there'll be more of it next week, set in a very different, <laughs> darker context of demons and possession and cars come to life. It's going to be wild. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you Andrew and Mav for another super sexy conversation thank you Sean for lending us your expertise thank you for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song play us out